I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. We will uh, give attention this morning to verses 9 through 18, John chapter 1. I suppose that the ultimate question that any human being could ever ask, the question that, at least from a, from a biblical standpoint, rises above every other human pondering, uh, the, the question that would be the most important question for a person to ask and find the correct answer to, is simply the question of who is Jesus Christ? Would you agree with me that that's the most important question? I mean, we ask a lot of questions throughout the day. There are a lot of things we wonder about. There are a lot of things we think about. A lot of things we pursue answers to. Uh, most of the things we think about, well, I speak for myself, maybe not you. Most of the things I think about are rather insignificant. Um, but there's one thing that we should think about that's not insignificant. Who is Jesus Christ? It is a question that really gets to the heart of what matters in life. Who is Jesus Christ? The Bible says that the eternal destiny of every human being hangs on whether or not we get the answer to that question right. And so it is then the ultimate question. And I'm convinced that most of the people who have walked this planet have, have gotten the answer to that question wrong. Have come to some conclusion about the identity of the person of Jesus Christ that is incorrect, that is untrue. It's not biblical. It's not right. And because of that, I think the case the Bible makes is that most of the people who've walked this planet have lost their souls forever because of it. Because they don't know who Christ is. They've missed, missed Him. And you and I live in a world that's really not any different than the world throughout the generations before us. Our world is filled with confusing and contradictory pictures and images and definitions Concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. Concerning the answer to that question, who is Jesus Christ? A, a quick survey of the popular religions of our world can just kind of catch the tip of the iceberg of the confusion and the, the oddity. If you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness this morning, who is Jesus Christ? What is his identity? They would tell you something along the lines of he was Michael the archangel who became a man perfect man but not God in flesh he didn't rise from the dead and uh, he, he was he, he was raised not a human creature but a spirit he and, and somewhere around 1914 he began some sort of an invisible reign over the earth that's what the Jehovah's Witness would tell you something along those lines if you were to ask someone from the Church of Latter-day Saints who is Jesus Christ they would say to you something like he's the first spirit to be born in heaven that's who Jesus is is or was spirit brother to Satan. He was born, he got married, he had children. If you were to ask someone who comes out of, out of Islam, I would say to you, oh Jesus, he was, a, he was a very great prophet, second only to Muhammad. We hold him in high regard, they would say. Oh, he's, he's not the Son of God. He's, he's not divine. He, he certainly wasn't crucified on a cross, but he is a great prophet. If you were to ask someone who comes out of, 
um, the religion of Christian science, they would say something to you like, oh, Jesus, he's, he's the divine idea man. I don't know what that means. They do. You ask somebody from the Unity Church, they would say to you, oh, Jesus, he's the, he's the way shower. He's the one who shows us the way. Helps us have a complete connection of some sort with the Father. If you were to ask some Hindus, they might say to you, Jesus was the reincarnation of Elisha. He was a student of John the Baptist, maybe even. Are you confused yet? If you ask somebody from the Jesus Seminar, a more recent group, they would just say, oh, Jesus, he was, he was an itinerant preacher who taught peace and he taught love and he taught rights for women and respect for children and all sorts of great things like that. Or if you were to ask the infamous John Allegro, who started a church in California called the Sacred Mushroom of the Cross, he would say he firmly believed that Jesus Christ was a mushroom. When asked if he believed in Jesus, John Allegro may answer, Sure, I saw him just this morning. It's a psychedelic cult, by the way. Hyped up on drugs, mushroom drugs. And if it's not confusing enough to survey just the religious world in our world, you begin to ask people from the non-religious world, just people who just live in the culture, who don't claim any particular religious uh, identity or any religious allegiance, ask them who Jesus is, and you get all sorts of other answers. From the, from the, the simplest, well, Jesus, he's just a myth. He's kind of like every other myth that we tell in our culture. Lots of people like to believe in myths. Jesus, he's, he's, just a figment of, he's just a figment of the imaginations of Christians. He's a crutch for people who are, who are mentally weak, who need something in order to, to make it through the day. That's who Jesus is. People who just can't cope with life. If you were to ask some of the great philosophers in our secular culture, culture like Elton John, I hope you get the humor in that. Here's what he says. I think Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. On the cross, he forgave the people who crucified him. Jesus wanted us to be loving and forgiving. That's who Jesus is. Or even a deeper theologian from the music world, Marilyn Manson, who says, if I found Jesus, I don't think he would be all that different from me. Now, if you know anything about Marilyn Manson, that would just make your hair stand up. But, you know, I suspect that Marilyn Manson's thought is pretty indicative of what most people in our culture think about Jesus. When they think of Jesus, he's not at all unlike them. Now, there's so much confusion about who Jesus is. It's almost, it's almost inconceivable that somebody could come to the truth in the midst of all of that Definition and confusion. So people are confused about who Jesus is. And it's the person of Christ, the identity of Christ, who he, who he actually is, that I think is the one thing that the people most stumble upon when contemplating Christianity. Do you agree with that? I mean, there are a lot of parts of Christianity that are fairly acceptable to the average guy. But when it comes to who is Jesus Christ as the Bible portrays him, and as John is going to show him to us this morning in John chapter 1, it's at this point that people stumble on him. You see, people 
in general, are fine with generic images of Jesus. They're, they're comfortable with the, the kinds of generic images that we see during this time of the year. They're comfortable with a baby in a manger. They're, they're comfortable with a, a prophet who stands up for the poor and the outcasts and who calls us to, to be kind to one another and to love one another. They're, they're comfortable with that. They're comfortable with, with him being a great teacher who, who teaches love and teaches respect and tolerance and kindness and peace. They're comfortable with these things. But when you get down to the identity, to the truth of who Jesus is, as John is going to present him to us this morning, it's at that point that people check out. It's at that point that people say, wait a minute, that's just too much. That's absurd. They don't want any part of it. One author said it this way. He said, I discovered that the less some people know about Christ, the more they like him. That's true, isn't it? The baby in a manger touches even the most cynical soul who has long since given up on religion. The secularist who's bent on reforming society quotes selected verses from the Sermon on the Mount with reverence. And even religious types use him as their example of humility, sacrifice, and basic goodness. He's worthy to be spoken about in hushed tones. He is, say some, the first among equals. Yet in all this, he is often damned by faint praise. And that's about all that faint praise does. And so we live in a world that's full of religion that gets the identity of Christ wrong. And and we live in a world that's full of very non-religious people who also have conjectures about who He is. They also get the idea wrong of who Christ is. And so how do we find out in the midst of all of this who He is? Well, we find out by going to God's Word where He's clearly defined. And it is our great joy this morning to be in the Gospel of John at Christmas time, isn't it? So that we can get beyond the simple thoughts that are so acceptable and get down to the true identity of who Christ is. And in our text this morning, that's exactly what John, the apostle, drills down to. It's exactly where he takes us. Now, if you recall, you've been with us in our study so far in chapter 1. We've looked at the first seven verses, excuse me, the first nine verses uh, of chapter 1. Pastor Frank walked us through those, uh, through two sermons in those verses. And then last week, we, we took this section uh, uh, immediately following what we'll take this morning, dealing with the witness of John the Baptist. And, and what we saw in the first part of this prologue in John chapter 1 is, is John just launching right out of the chute with some very deep thoughts, uh, introducing us who Christ is. Don't you love it when a book starts nice and slow? I mean, it starts nice and slow, John does, right? The first thing he tells us is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, John, right out of the chute, introduces us to thoughts that are quite deep. He introduces us to, to this, this being who is called by him the Word. And this being who is called the Word is both one at the same time, both God and what? And with God. He is both with God and he is God. He tells us that, that this word who is both God and is with God, uh, that, that, that all things that we know, that all things that are, were made through him. Were made through him. And then he goes on to say that he is the embodiment of life, and that is a life that, that in some sense shines on all of mankind and enlightens him. And he shines in the midst of such darkness. And and at the same time, the darkness doesn't overcome him. 
and the light that he shines. Now, if we just stopped right there, that's enough to make my mind spin for quite some time. Trying to just contemplate that, just trying to come to grips with who is this word who is both at one at the same time God and with God, who created all things, who, who embodies life and who shines that light upon all of creation in some sense, particularly on men. And if John stopped there and just spent the rest of the book trying to explain that, that would be sufficient for me. But John doesn't stop there. To quote the great chef Emeril Lagasse, he kicks it up a notch. And he drills down even deeper. And he tells us this morning something even more remarkable, even more unbelievable than the fact that the Word was God and was with God. In fact, he's going to tell us something and introduce us to something that I would conjecture to say is the most remarkable, unbelievable miracle in the Bible. And there are a lot of miracles in the Bible, a lot of them. I think this one tops them all. You could argue that what John is going to tell us this morning is the most significant truth in all of the Christian faith. You could argue that it's certainly the primary truth that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. That, I think, could be clearly argued. He's going to introduce to us a truth that's deeper and yet more profound and more important in some sense. Well, maybe not more important, but let's just say equally as important because it must be believed in order for a person to be a Christian. Just say it that way. Our faith rises and falls on this one miracle and truth. Now, there are other things that are critical to our faith as well, but this one is certainly one of them. In fact, you could argue what he's about to tell us, the whole Bible hinges on this truth. In order to understand the Old Testament rightly, we have to understand this truth. In order to make sense of what the New Testament is going to teach beyond the event, we have to come to grips with and understand this miracle and this truth. So what is this miracle? What is this truth that shapes the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn with me to verse 9 of John chapter 1, and we'll read our text. John writes, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we've received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you as the God who became flesh. And it is our task this morning to contemplate this truth. And with the faculties that you've given us, with our human intellect, with our 
ability to understand things, we will drill down and study and think and try to wrap our brains around this truth. And yet we understand, Lord, that, that we can only take this so far. As we think this morning about what it means for the Word to become flesh, for you, God of all gods, to become human. That there's a place at which our human understanding comes to an end. And faith must begin. A place where our human intellect runs out of resources. And your divine revelation must come to bear. And so, Lord, this morning as I attempt to put feeble words to this unexplainable truth presented to us by your servant John, we pray that you would shine your light of revelation upon us that we might understand what by human standards is not understandable. And beyond understanding that we would believe it, receive it, embrace it. For in doing so, we believe, receive, and embrace you. We pray that that would be the result of our time together this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our time together this morning, there's no way that we would uh, be able to address every, every thought or every truth in this, this chunk of the prologue. So what I want us to do is begin in verse 14 and structure uh, the way we address this this morning by simply just saying we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at first the most remarkable miracle. We find that in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This, this remarkable miracle in the Bible, this remarkable truth about the identity of Christ, we're going to look at that. And then we're going to see an, an, an unbelievable irony that, that, that John presents us with after presenting us with this remarkable miracle. And so that's kind of how we're going to take this. We'll look at verse 14. We'll come back and pull some of these other verses in to support our way of going about this. So start there with me and let's look at this miracle that John introduces us to. He simply tells us the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. This Word that He introduced in chapter 1, verse 1, the Word who, who was with God, the Word who was God, this Word who was in every sense God and with God, this Word who, was, who has always been, who was before anything was created, this Word who, through whom all things were created, this Word who embodies life, and shines that life as a light upon men, this very Word, God Himself. John tells us He became flesh and He dwelt among us. The one who was before all things, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who rules all things, He became flesh and He dwelt among us. The infinite one took on time. The one who the Bible describes as dwelling in radiant light took on human flesh. The one who is beyond time, who is before time, is outside of time, stepped into time. God became man. And he dwelt among us. That word, or that phrase that we have translated there, dwelt among us. It comes from words that, that give the picture of a tent or the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The, the, the God became flesh and He pitched His tent among us. He, he dwelt among us. He came near and He lived among men, John is saying to us. 
Now, although he doesn't identify by name this word that he introduces in verse 1 and then clarifies here in verse 14, he doesn't give give his name until verse 17 where he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It becomes clear here by the time we get to verse 14 who he's talking about, right? When he says the word became flesh, we now have moved from the the, the eternity before time began in verse 1 now into human time at a point in which we can identify the birth of Christ, right? We're familiar with that story. Luke and Matthew give it to us from the human perspective. Mary, Joseph, a baby born. We have that story. It was written before John wrote his gospel. And John expects, I think, his readers to understand that and know that as the backdrop. And John is wanting to say, this baby who was born, Jesus Christ, you need to know more about him. You need to understand his, his full identity. He is God become man. That's who he is. So what does John mean? I mean, it's a relatively simple phrase, isn't it? The word became flesh and dwelt among men. It's not even a lot of words, and they're not complicated words, right? But what does it mean that God became man? That the word became flesh? Well, as I mentioned, I guess, in the prayer, it's impossible, I think, to fully grasp this with the human intellect. Would you agree with that? That we can dig into this a bit, and we will here for our time together. But there's a place where we run out of resources, in our minds to come to a conclusion. It is the mystery that makes Christmas glorious. That the birth of the baby of Christmas is God coming into human flesh. It is the mystery of mysteries. It is the most glorious truth that human beings have ever been confronted with. That the God who created us all, that the God against whom we have, every one of us has personally rebelled, The God who would be completely righteous in destroying us in fiery judgment. Instead of doing that, He became flesh and lived among us. The great mystery of Christmas is not how does Santa get to every house in one night. The great mystery of Christmas is not how does a fat, happy man get down a skinny chimney. The great mystery of Christmas is how is it that God becomes flesh and dwells among us? It is a glorious, miraculous, inconceivable mystery that we can only scratch the surface of. The Word, in every sense God, becomes man in every sense man except sin. God becomes man. The Word becomes flesh. He takes... In the birth of Jesus, God is taking upon Himself flesh with all that that means. He accepts the limitations that are part and parcel of our human experience. And He becomes, in a very real sense, humanity. John MacArthur says it this way, He entered the realm of those who are time and space creatures. And He experienced life as it is for those He created. 
You know, previous to this, God had revealed himself in a lot of different ways. If you've read much of the Old Testament, you've seen glimpses of this. You've, you've, caught, you've caught passages that tell us this. God has shown himself to men in a variety of ways. In the Old Testament, we see God revealing himself through dreams and visions on occasions, giving men, in some cases, a glimpse of who he is, a, a glimpse of his identity. We go back to Moses and we see God... Uh, interacting with Moses through a, a supernatural fire in a burning bush, and he reveals some things about himself to Moses. We see in this in this remarkable glow in the Old Testament that that rested above the Ark of the Covenant, um, a, a picture, an image, something about God that He's revealed to human beings about who He is. A partial view. They see in the wilderness wanderings, God revealing himself as a as a pillar of fire and as smoke and as other things. And in all of these images that we see throughout the Old Testament, these revelations of, of who God is before men, they, they they include some level of distance between him and us. Do you see that? But what John is saying here in the birth of Christ is God has revealed himself in a way that is unlike anything he's ever done before. He bridges the gap and the distance is no longer there. God steps out of heaven and He becomes human. He can be seen. He can be heard. He can be touched. He can be watched. He came near. He came near. The God who was partially revealed before reveals Himself much more fully in becoming flesh. God becomes human And the part of the mystery is he does so without in any sense diminishing his divinity. This is the mystery. How God, who at one and the same time is fully divine, is able to become flesh, take on humanity and become in every sense also, apart from sin, fully human. You see, when... John tells us that the Word became flesh. He tells us that he did so in such a way that he doesn't cease to be God at the same time. In some sense, he he willingly gives up the independent use of the privileges and powers that were God in taking on human flesh. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul kind of gives us a a little bit of help in understanding this when he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he did what? Say this with me. He emptied himself. But taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, or as John says it, becoming flesh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who was in every sense God, not ceasing to be God, willingly gives up the independent use and of his privileges and powers. He takes on the limitations of a human body and a human mind and a human voice. And he humbles himself. And he comes and he lives among the creatures who have rebelled against him for centuries. In some sense, in doing so, he he subjugates his will to the Father's will. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do what? The will of him who sent me. 
That's part of God becoming flesh. But in no sense does he cease to be God. Through all of this, what we, the theological term we use is incarnation for God becoming flesh. Through all of this God becoming human, he doesn't cease to be God. And yet at the same time, he's nothing less than human at the same time. The tongue that is able to powerfully call out to Lazarus, a dead man, to come to life, is what kind of a tongue? It's a human tongue. The hand that is able to, to touch a leper, a walking dead man, and give him life and healing, is what kind of a hand? It's a human hand. The voice that's able to command the winds and the seas in the midst of a storm to instantly stop is what kind of a voice? It's a human voice. It's a human voice. And the blood that runs down a Roman cross, atoning for my sin and your sin. What kind of blood is that? It's human blood. How is it possible? I don't know. I don't know. I see, uh, we've, we're only a few minutes into the sermon, and here's where my human intellect runs out. I don't know how that's so. But the Bible declares it to be so. And it's what John means when he says the Word became flesh. The birth of Jesus is a mysterious miracle. It is the miracle of Christmas, how God can become flesh, how the God of the universe, the eternal one, can become human. Max Lucado is a great storyteller. In my estimation, not the best of theologians, but a great storyteller. And he helps us here sense some of the humanity of this miracle. When he talks about Jesus, if we were to look at him at his birth, he looks anything, Lucado says, but a king. His face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. And he's absolutely dependent upon Mary for his well-being. He's a human. This baby had overlooked the universe. You see, he's also God. These rags keeping him warm were previously the robes of eternity. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. And worshiping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. (laughs) That's what happened. That's what happened when God became flesh. How in the world did this happen? How did God become flesh? Well, there's a sense in which Scripture answers the question. There is a sense in which the Bible tells us how this happened. Mary asked that question of all people, right? She was one who would be interested in how this could possibly happen because it pertained very directly to her life. When asking the question, she's answered by an angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And here's what the angel said. Here's how it's going to happen, Mary. You want to know? Here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How is it that God became flesh? Well, we're told simply here by Luke, through an angel to Mary, that it's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That there is an interaction, the the power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. A teenage woman, a human mother. And in the midst of all that, a child is created and the Word became flesh. 
miraculously created by God in Mary's womb. The Word becomes flesh. In one sense, that's an answer to the question of how it happened. That is technically how it happened. But that doesn't give us the full story of how it happened. There's more to it that we can't explain. Luke simply, without fanfare, narrates the event a little further along the line in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. In a familiar passage around Christmas time, Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. In the end. And that's how the Word became flesh. Created supernaturally in Mary's womb by the power of Almighty God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Given birth like any other human baby through this woman Mary. He grew in her womb. He was born like any other human baby. He cried and he grew like any other human baby. He was in every sense God in flesh. That's how it happened from a narrative perspective. But beyond what we're told right here, we simply can't answer the question of how any further, can we? How is it that the power of God created this baby in Mary's womb beyond what we're told here? I don't know. It's a miracle. And by definition, miracles are what? Well, they're miraculous. They're unexplainable. That's what makes them a miracle. Nobody can explain how God could become a baby, yet he did. It's what John tells us happened. Our minds came and began to understand what was involved. Now, he who was fully God, all-wise and all-powerful, can become fully human with all the needs and emotions common to every single human being. I don't know. But the Bible declares it to be true, and it is glorious because it's the only way that you and I could be rescued from our sin. That's what John's going to go on to tell us later in his gospel. Why did he do it? That's a different question altogether, isn't it? When we contemplate this idea that the Word became flesh, that God wraps Himself in humanity and becomes a human being and lives among men, tabernacles among us, to ask the question how is one thing, to ask the question why is another thing. And once again, we come upon the same challenge. We can come to some conclusions about why, and John gives us some, but we're also going to run out of our human intellect here as well. Because we dig far enough and we come to the answer, I don't know why. It's beyond my understanding to know why. But here in our text, John does give us some clues that, that give us some answers as to why. Why did God do this? Why did, why did God become flesh? We see in verse 18 one of the reasons for the purpose of revelation. Verse 18, chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. One of the reasons why the Word became flesh, one of the reasons why God stepped into to human flesh is that He might reveal Himself more fully to men. That people might be able to see Him more fully, more clearly than what they had seen Him before. You notice the first thing He says in verse 18 there, no one has ever seen God. You've, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you've picked up on that thought somewhere along the way, right? I've told you already that God has revealed Himself partially in various ways throughout the Old Testament, but no one has ever seen Him fully. 
The Old Testament makes that clear. Jesus, later in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, verse 46, says this, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus says, Nobody's seen the Father except me. I'm the only one who's seen him. The reason nobody has ever seen him, we get back in the book of Exodus, is because if anybody ever did see him, he would instantly be dead and never live to tell about it. Exodus chapter 33, you remember uh, Moses having this conversation with God where Moses is wanting to get a fuller vision of who God is and he says to God, show me your glory. Do you remember that text in that passage? God said, I'll make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and what? And live. Moses was allowed to see the back edge, the afterglow of the glory of God, but he wasn't able to see God fully. Do you remember Isaiah the prophet catches a little glimpse and a vision of who God is? Do you remember this? Uh, this, this image of God uh, on his throne and his, his robe filling the room and, and, and Isaiah catches a little glimpse of this and he sees just a little bit of the edge of who God is and what's his response? Do you remember? He falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, I'm ruined. He is instantly confronted with God's majestic holiness and how it contrasts with his utter filth. And he only sees a little bit. For God to reveal himself fully would instantly kill a man. That's the point. And that's what John is affirming here, that no one has seen God. No one has seen him before. And yet John tells us something remarkable. He says, Christ, the Word who became flesh, He has what? He's made Him known. Nobody ever before has seen God. But Christ, the Word became flesh. He, He's made God known. He's brought God close to be seen like He has never seen before. That phrase translated made Him known is from the Greek word in which we get exegesis, which is what we're attempting to do this morning. Tempting is probably the best word. And it, but it, the word just means to explain. We're trying to explain the Bible. And this word that, that is translated here, that Jesus has made him known, is a word that means explain. Jesus, in some sense, has explained the Father. He's explained him. He's exegeted him. He's narrated him, if you will. He's made him known in a way that he's never been known before. The God who has never been seen before is now able to be what? He's able to be seen. He's able to be looked upon and listened to and watched. John chapter 14, further over in the Gospel, Jesus makes this astounding statement in a conversation with Philip. He says, Philip, listen. Whoever has seen me has what? Has seen the Father. Just think, just, just stop for a minute and think about this. No one, John says, has ever seen God. And in the blink of an eye, all of that changes. Because the Word became flesh. And now Jesus can look at a man, Philip, and say, Philip, look at me. When you see me, you see Him. I make Him known. 
part of the reason why the Word became flesh is, to, is for us to, to, to be able to know God. It's, it's God revealing Himself in a way that He's never been revealed before. Coming near, coming close so that we can see Him and observe Him and understand Him. You want to know what God is like? John is saying if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. You'll know. You want to hear what, what God would say if He could speak to people? Listen to what Jesus says. And you hear what God would say. You want to know what God would do if He could live among men? Watch what Jesus did and you'll see what God would do because that is what God did. The mystery that was God in the Old Testament comes into focus in the man, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh to reveal God. God had shown Himself in some remarkable ways in the Old Testament. And time and time again, men had rejected Him. And God would have been completely just in doing what? Destroying all of mankind. Say that with me. Destroying all of mankind. Instead, what does He do? He says, I'll come closer so that you can see me better. The Word became flesh to reveal But it's not just to reveal, it's also to save. He came for revelation, and the answer to the question of why is also He came for salvation. Look at verse 16 with me. John tells us, For from His fullness we've received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through whom? Jesus Christ. God became flesh in order to reveal Himself to men, but God also became flesh in order to save And these two words, grace and truth, we see them early. We saw them earlier in verse 14, speaking of Jesus, full of grace and truth. But these are two characteristics that are, they're two of God's attributes that are most closely connected with our salvation. This idea of grace and truth. And God is going to teach, I mean, excuse me, John is going to, well, God too. But John is going to teach us this as we move our way through John's gospel time and time again. We're going to hear the word believe come up again and again and again. John's all the time talking about believing, believing, believing. And what is it that he's wanting people to believe? Well, he's wanting them to believe the truth and the truth of the gospel. Because it is the truth of the gospel once believed that makes one the recipient of God's grace. In other words, that's how men are saved. They believe the truth. And by grace, they're saved. That's what John's going to tell us. And here we get a glimpse of that as being part of the purpose for which the Word became flesh. And you notice how he gives us this? He gives us this in contrast to the law. He says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through whom? Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. The law was given through Moses. Why does he make this connection? Why does he mention the law? Well, the law was was given through Moses. The law of the Old Testament reflected God's holy character, but yet the law could not do what? Say this with me. The law could not save anyone. Say that with me. The law could not save anyone. That is a fact that the Bible makes clear over and over and over again in the New Testament. Obeying the Old Testament law could never save a human soul. Doing good, doing righteous deeds, obeying the law the best that one could cannot save a person. In Acts chapter 13, at the preaching of the apostles, they make this clear. Listen in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by what? The law of Moses. 
that there's something that Christ brings that comes when God becomes flesh that's offered to men, that can do something that the law could never do. It frees us from things that the law could never free us from, that namely being our sin. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says it a different way. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in whom? Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, the works by works of the law, no one will be justified. The law could never justify. The law could never save men. The law could never free men from his enslavement to sin because the law at its very basis is not an instrument of grace. You see, the law had a purpose. And the purpose of the law was to convict sinners of their inability to live up to God's holy standard. That was the purpose of the law. The the law was there to show us how far we fall short and to bring us to conviction of the fact that God is holy and we are sinful. The law reveals that to us. The writer of Hebrews says that. He says in the sacrifices that are part of the law, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's what the law does. It reminds us that we're sinners and that that God is holy and that we fall short of His glory. The law does that. It convicts us of our sin. And and the other thing it does is it condemns us to eternal punishment. The law convicts us of sin and it condemns us. It exposes the truth that every one of us is fallen and sinful and we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages that we're due for that is what? Death. Death. That's what's pictured in the sacrificial system as part of the law. Said another way, the law doesn't save The law simply served to reveal man's need for grace. Did you get that? This is the purpose of the law. Not to save us, but to show us our need for grace. In Galatians chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, Paul writes of this. And he tells us the law was meant to point us to Christ, who's the one who'd bring grace. He says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. You see, this is, what, this is what John is saying. He's saying, the law came by Moses, but it had no ability to save. All it had is the ability to condemn. The law came that way, but God hasn't left us with just the law. The Word became flesh, and Christ came that we might see grace and truth, that we might not be forever condemned, but that we might be given grace. And truth. You know, you and I live in a world that's absolutely captured with lies, isn't it? I mean, I give you a quick survey in the introduction about that. And of course, the Bible tells us that Satan, the god of this world, is the father of what? Father of lies. He blinds men and he deceives men. And he does so primarily through lies. And he uses the culture at large. He uses all of the means at his disposal to propagate his lies and to deceive and to confuse He does that. And the world in which we live is full of lies. The lies of false religion. You can earn your way into salvation by works. If you do the right rituals, if you go to the right church, if you you ascribe to the right belief system, then somehow you can work your way into a right standing with God. And all the false religions of the world are somehow built off of that basic premise. It's a lie. It propagates our world. It's propagated in our world. He uses the lies of worldly philosophy, things like evolution, the idea that the world is all that there is, naturalism, that there is no God, that all there is is people and earth and things, and we're all just here for a little while. 
you know, kind of climbing up the evolutionary scale. It's just lies. They're lies. Worldly philosophy, materialism, live for money and things and you'll be fulfilled. It's a it's a worldly philosophy. It's just another one of another one of the lies. The atheism and agnosticism that's so prevalent in our culture. There is no God. There's just you. Just another one of those what? Just another one of those lies. Or the deified self. There is a God and it's you. Just look inside and you'll find God there. Just another lie. You know what? Our world is absolutely swimming in deception and lies because the God of this world is the father of lies who actively deceives and captures men in lies. And yet here, here John tells us something remarkable. That God did not leave us in that predicament. The word became flesh and he's full of truth. He came full of truth. When the Word becomes flesh, God becomes man, and He comes so with a purpose that He might reveal to us the truth, that we might not be captured by the lies anymore. He tells us the truth about God, that He's the Creator of all things, and He's the one against whom we've rebelled. He tells us the truth about us, who we are, that we're sinful, that we've fallen short of His glory, that on our very best days we're corrupt and rebellious. He tells us the truth about who we are. He tells us the truth about who Christ is, who He is. He tells us that He's God in flesh, that He would die in our place as a substitutionary atonement. He tells us the truth about what it means to be saved, that if men would just believe on Him and receive Him and place our faith in Him and turn from our evil ways and submit to His rule, that we would have eternal life. See, all of that is truth, and He came in flesh to shine that truth in the midst of the lies. In order that that truth might be believed and received by people like us. And then in believing and receiving, we might be set free. Jesus said, if you abide in my words, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And you know, ultimately, everybody who's condemned at the end of their life is condemned because at the end of the day, they refused to believe what? The truth. The truth. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, listen. Those who are perishing, verse 10, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 12, all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why are people condemned? Because they refused to love the truth and be saved. They preferred the lie. And Jesus, God in flesh, Is the truth embodied in the midst of lies. He's not just truth, but he's also grace. What's grace? Simply put, grace is unmerited favor of God towards us. It's God giving us what we absolutely do not deserve and have not earned. Harry Ironside said it this way, Grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it's favor shown to the one who deserves what? The very opposite Simply put, what is this grace that we're talking about here? Romans 5.8 captures it the best. But God shows His love for us in that while we were what? Still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. That, my friends, is grace. The Word became flesh to reveal God to us more fully. And the Word became flesh to expose us to the truth in the midst of lies. 
and that He might die for us while we were still sinners. That's grace. He came that we might be saved. He came that we might be able to know the truth and that He might die for us even though we didn't deserve it. And that believing upon such things, we could be saved. Why did the Word become flesh? He came to reveal God and He came to save us. And listen to this. Verse 10. In light of that unbelievable miracle, that God of gods would become human for those purposes. Listen to what verse 10 of chapter 1 of John tells us. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet, what happened? Unbelievable, isn't it? Inconceivable, isn't it? The world to which he came did not know him. It didn't know him. The most unbelievable miracle that has, ever, that has ever happened in human existence happened in Bethlehem. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ is born. God, of all gods, becomes man. In a desperate and dying and condemned world, God steps in. And the world didn't know Him. The world completely missed it. Missed it. It's unimaginable, isn't it? It's an unimaginable irony that God would do the most unbelievable thing that God could ever do. Come and become a human. Condescend to our level. Submit himself to human flesh in order to reveal himself to us and to save us. And, and, and the, the ones to whom he came slammed the door in his face. That's what John says happened. You know, I remember coming home from college. Do you remember that if you went to college? Or maybe if you went on a long trip somewhere. What's it like to come home? It's a good thing, right? I mean, I don't know what your home was like. My home was it was a good thing. There was good food awaiting there. There was a good bed to lay in there. There were people who loved me there when I came home from college. It's still like that when I come home from a trip. I love to come home. Because I know when I come home, there's going to be a door that's going to open. And there's going to be a little boy who's going to be smiling. And there's going to be a wife who's normally going to be happy to see me. I love to come home. That's where my people are. That's where I'm accepted and received and loved and welcomed. It's probably true of you too. But the Bible says when God came to this world, His people didn't open to Him. They didn't welcome Him. They didn't embrace Him in love and receive Him. They didn't know Him. The world to which He came, the world that He came to rescue did not know Him. And if it wasn't bad enough that the world didn't know Him, frankly, when He was born, nobody noticed except a handful of shepherds and a little later on, some magi. Outside of that, the world didn't know Him, did they? They didn't even know it happened. Frankly, the world in our day still doesn't know it happened. But if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough, did you get what the other part of it said? Verse 11, He came to His own. And his own people didn't receive him. Who were his own people? Israel. It's not bad enough that God comes to redeem the world from its sin and the world doesn't know him, but he came to his very own people, his own family. 
The people that he had, he had called out from among the world, that he had poured out his, his unique and electing love on in the Old Testament. The people that he had been working with for generation after generation after generation, who he had, he had forgiven time and time and time again in their rebellion, who he had pursued. He comes close to them. And they didn't receive him either. They had every advantage. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the prophecies. They had the promises. They had everything. And God's people did not receive him. And you know what? That's hard to imagine. But it is just as true today as it was when John wrote this and when Jesus was born, isn't it? The God of the universe came in human flesh. The Word became flesh and the world does not know him. I told you in the introduction what the world, at least a a quick survey of what many in the world think of Jesus Christ, and it's enough to help you understand the world does not know him. the, The first century world did not know him, and our world does not know Christ. And you know, that's the irony of ironies in our day, isn't it? For the next week and a half, everybody will be celebrating what? Christmas. They'll be using His name. They'll be singing songs about Him. They'll be giving gifts in exchange for the gift that He was. They'll be celebrating Him. And yet they don't know Him. I suspect that perhaps there are some in this place today even who have maybe celebrated Christmas for a long time. But you don't know Christ. You've never come to terms with the reality that when it comes to who Christ is, He is God in human flesh. He is God who has come to live and ultimately to die on a cross where He shed His blood for your sin. That you might believe upon Him and have eternal life. The sad reality is in the mix of our Christmas celebrations this year, most of the people we encounter will not know God. They will not know Christ. And so really, I guess the the way to wrap this up, our time is well beyond up this morning, is to say this. Number one, we need to make sure we know who He is. That we don't stop at just a cute baby in a manger. That we come to terms with the fact that He is God in flesh. Come to rescue us who needed rescue and who could not be rescued apart from Him. And that that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. The only thing we can do is believe the truth and receive His grace. The way you do that is by simply confessing your sin before Him. Confessing that you cannot save yourself. Bowing your life before Him and submitting to His Lordship, saying, Lord Jesus, I know who You are. You are God come to rescue me. I cannot save myself. I have no hope apart from you. I give you my life from this day forward. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I receive you as God in flesh come to save me. That's how you need to respond this morning. Perhaps you're here and you're a believer and you've already responded in such fashion. Well, you've got a call as well. You're going to navigate it around a world in the next week and a half who does not know Him, a world that doesn't know Him, and even religious people who do not know Him. What better opportunity, right, than a time when people are already talking about Him to truly make Him known.
Who is it in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your circle of friends who doesn't know him, to whom you could make him known this year? Why don't you pray about that as we pray together? Lord Jesus, we are confounded by this truth, confounded by it. (laughs) That somehow you, the God of all gods, the timeless and eternal one, the one who knows all things, who has always been, who has all power and all knowledge, humbled yourself, becoming flesh and blood, taking on human flesh, becoming as we are, so that we could see you fully in ways that we've never seen you before, so that we could hear your words and see your deeds and come to believe in you and know you. Ultimately, doing that, that you might save us from our sin. Absolutely confounds us. We cannot conceive it. We cannot but explain it like we have today. But you haven't called us to explain it. You've called us to believe it. And we must do that by faith. So we pray that in these moments, Lord, as we contemplate these things, that you would shine your light of divine revelation on our hearts, that we might know that this is true, and that we might believe it with all of our hearts, and that we might receive you. For that man or woman who does not know you, may this very moment be the moment they receive you, by faith, believing the truth, becoming recipients of your grace that you might save them. Oh, we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. As we stand, as we stand, as we stand, as we stand, as we stand.